0: Now, a lot of Christians I know, they say the disciple with whom they most identify is Peter. They talk about his failures as well as how much they can relate to those shortcomings. I get it, and I'm grateful that scripture not only reveals its character's greatest exploits, like David slaying Goliath, but it also reveals the character's biggest blunders, like David's affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. Well, the Bible does this with Peter. We see his high points and we see his lows. The problem is, well, we identify with the lows, all which come from a, now Now, get this, a pre-saved version of the disciple. In other words, we wrongly identify with the pre-redeemed version of this hero of the faith. Now, let me explain that, and that's part of what this talk is all about. For sure, to understand Peter, you can't just look at the gospels, which is what we often do. You've got to look at what happens to him after the cross. It's the cross and the resurrection that changes everything. Now think about it. When we present the message of the gospel to unbelievers, we don't point them to the birth of Christ. That's the beginning of the gospels. We point them to his death on our behalf. We show them the cross. So in this talk, we'll take a look at Peter in the gospels, but we'll also look at Acts and his epistles. And in the end, you're going to see this twofold reality of this. Number one, confidence in Christ. Peter learns who he really is, and that knowledge changes everything for him. And number two, Christ working through him. The more Peter lives from who he really is, the more he expresses the life of Christ through him. And that means my goal for you in this talk is this, that like Peter, you will, number one, discover who you are in Christ and develop that confidence in him. And then, number two, you too will live as Christ, even doing the things, get this, that Jesus didn't do when he was here. After all, he said this, that we would do greater works than he did in John 14:12. Something that you're going to see Peter clearly tapped into. That said, let me bring back this graphic. I'm going to put it in the show notes. I brought it uh, to your attention really in a previous uh, talk, and so I want you to take a look at it. And I want you to notice the arrows. Jesus is in the middle, and what I said last time is he reveals the Father. He shows us what God is like, and not only does he reveal who the Father is, that's what we learned in talk one of this series, he reveals our identity too, which is what we're about to learn. And so there's an arrow from him to you. Now, let me talk about name changes. Throughout the Bible, we see this dynamic that names mean something, that names clearly declare who people are and what they actually do. The problem is that in the Scripture, sometimes people have the wrong name. Their name doesn't accurately reflect what they're designed to be, who they're designed to become. And so there's a destiny for everybody that Ephesians 2, 8-10 through 10 says, it was imparted to you, it was declared over you by the Creator, this great thing thing that you would show up for before time began. For an example, take Abraham. The first time we meet Abraham, we meet him and he's referred to as Abram. That's in Genesis 11, 10 and following. Now that's a great name. It means exalted father, but God has called him to more. So he adjusts his name to Abraham, which means exalted father of a numerous people. That's slightly better. You see that in Genesis 17.1. Uh, Sarah, his wife, is another person whose name was changed to reflect the destiny God had for her. Again, she had a fantastic name, Sarah, uh, a princess lady. But God had a greater purpose for her too. Having carried the stigma of childlessness through her entire life, in her 90s, God began to refer to her as Sarah, a similar name which also means laughter or joy. Through the birth of her son Isaac, the stigma of barrenness would be gone and she would experience a happiness of fulfillment that she hadn't yet known. You see how that works? Well, Jesus meets Peter early in his ministry, and true to form, Jesus completely changes his names too. Here's the snip from John one forty two where it happens. I'm going to read you the English Standard Version. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. That's it. It's the first time Jesus encounters the fisherman, according to John, and it seems, it seems, completely insignificant until you get more info. Now, here's the more that you need to know. The name Simon, it literally means reed, twig, shifting sand. In other words, if this man behaves in any way related to what he's been named by his parents, it means that he is undependable. He might change from one moment to the next, unreliable. He will likely say he's going to do one thing, but then do the exact opposite. Unstable, his emotions might throw him off balance. Jesus affirms that this, this is exactly what Peter has been like. You are Simon, but Simon is not who this disciple is destined to be. Jesus relabels him, and it turns out Jesus gives him a name that is the exact opposite of his given name. Jesus calls him Peter. That is. Rock, And whereas you can't build anything on quicksand, rock is stable and steady. It's what you desperately want. And remember this, Jesus gives Peter this new name the first time he meets him. He literally speaks destiny into him when he does, long before there's any evidence that Jesus has accurately labeled him. So, that brings the problem. The problem is that Peter is anything but a rock for the next several pages of Scripture. It's not like he's all bad. Rather, he's, he's shifty. He's like his name, like sand. He bends like a twig, like Simon. For instance, think about this. Peter's the first guy to walk on water. That's Matthew 14, and following. Jesus approaches him and the disciples. He's striding across the waves during a storm. They all think he's a ghost, even though he suggests he's their master. Well, if it's you, Peter says, tell me to walk on water and I'll do it. That sounds like great faith, doesn't it? It looks like he's about to live up to that rock identity. Well, Peter takes a few steps on the water and he sinks. Save me, he begs. I'm drowning. Alas, he's back to shifting sand. He gets another chance, though. One day, Jesus asked the disciples who people say that he is. So the rumors immediately come to light. Some say he's a prophet that's come back to life, like Jeremiah or the prophet Elijah. This is in Matthew 16:14. Others say that he's a ghost or a reincarnation of a religious leader who is revered and then murdered, a la John the Baptist. Again, Matthew 16, 14. Now, if we look throughout the Bible, you learn that Jesus' identity, it was always questioned. That was nothing new. So let me give you like just a footnote. Like Religious leaders in that time, teachers, they presumed that he was demon-possessed. That's in Mark 13, 22. Other Jews thought that he was a Samaritan, meaning he was a half-breed, half Jewish and half Assyrian, meaning he didn't have the credentials to lead a religious movement according to them. That's in John 8.48. Uh, some argued that he was, here's the word, a bastard, that he was an illegitimate child, some nameless father, perhaps even a, a soldier or something, John 8.41. And then of course there were family members who thought that he had simply lost his mind, that he was insane. That's Mark 3.22. Now amidst that, Peter, looking very much like a rock, again, all these questions, he proposes the correct answer. He says in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Now that's remarkable because we consider that the only others to get the answer correct, it was actually demons. They're the ones who knew Jesus was going to destroy them in their works. If you read passages like Mark 1, 24. in other words, Peter communicates spiritual insight during this moment. Spiritual insight that, according to Jesus, can only be revealed by the Father in that moment. And it sounds like he's moving in the right direction, but no. Just a few sentences later, Jesus outlines his plan. How he'll travel to Jerusalem, how the religious elite will betray him, and how he'll be executed. This is Matthew 16, 21. Now, I know this. I know that you and I know the end of the story. We know that Jesus tells them that he'll also rise from the dead. And of course, we know that that's what he does. But remember this, in their day and age, they've never seen a resurrection up to this point. They have no way of understanding what Jesus even means. So, what does Peter do? Well, he goes into the shifting sand twiggy mode. He actually rebukes Jesus for suggesting that he's about to die. And he's so adamant about it that Jesus actually has to tell him, get behind me, Satan. Well, there are other examples of this shifty behavior too. You probably remember, for instance, that Peter was the singular disciple who told Jesus that he wouldn't abandon him as he faced the cross. Even if everyone else leaves you and I have to die with you, I'll stay, he declared. That's in Matthew 26, 33, and 35. He appeared to live like the rock Jesus declared he was, well, until he fell asleep, while Jesus asked him to stay awake and keep watch so that he could pray. He did this not once or twice, but three times. That's Mark 14, 37 through 41. And then when those soldiers came with Judas to capture Jesus, everyone, including Peter, the one who said that he would die with him, they fled for their lives. Mark 14, 50. Now, to Peter's credit, he later returned to the courtyard where Jesus was being mocked and beaten. We don't know how long it took, but it appeared that his fortitude might emerge. Until people began questioning him, that is. Time after time, he denied that he knew Jesus. In, in fact, when a young teenage girl approached him about their relationship, he repeatedly called curses down upon himself in order to suggest that he had no connection to the Messiah whatsoever. Matthew 26, 69-74 Now we could go on. Uh, Peter made it first to the empty tomb, but then locked himself in a room later that evening for fear that the Jews who crucified Jesus would come kill him. This happened after the resurrected Jesus appeared to him, according to John 20, 26. And then Peter returned to fishing a few weeks later in John 21:3. The language used in that verse doesn't suggest that it was a one-time recreational activity either, but that he actually returned to his former trade, permanently abandoning his post as a disciple. It makes you all wonder, what did Jesus see at their first encounter? What did he see in people that no one else saw? After all, in every instance throughout the Gospels, Peter appears to be more like Simon than the Peter that Jesus has declared. Well, here's what I see. After Jesus ascended to the throne, something shifted for Peter. He began living as the person he actually is or was rather than the person that we had seen. For instance, in Acts 1.15, Peter stands up during the middle of the prayer meeting. He suggests that everyone select a replacement for Judas. Now that's a small step, but he clearly begins walking in leadership capacity. He anchors the fledgling group during what could be a really confusing time for them. Then, just one chapter later, the Holy Spirit descends upon the band of Jesus followers, and a crowd comes near them to learn what is happening. Peter stands up, Peter delivers a sermon. Now The result is that 3,000 people come to faith according to Acts 2.14 and following. This is all the more remarkable because the people didn't come to hear him preach. They came because they saw the Spirit moving upon the disciples, and they wrongly supposed they were drunk, according to Acts 2:13 and 15. In other words, his speech began from a point of contention and correction with the crowd that wasn't necessarily for him or for his message. This was not a Sunday morning service with a captive audience that was hoping to hear something inspirational to carry them through their week, in other words. In the next chapter... Peter continues walking in his actual identity as a rock. As he and John approach the temple to pray, a lame beggar looks at them hoping for a donation. Peter speaks the famous line, "Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you." Then, "In the name of Jesus, rise and walk." With that, and without even praying, Peter heals a man according to Acts 3:6. This causes such a commotion that the religious elitists, they arrest Peter and John, and they command them to stop preaching. Now, that is something a sandy Twiggy Simon would have likely conceded to. He would have stopped, but Peter uses his trial as a platform to speak even more about Jesus. You see that in Acts 4, 8 and 19. Yes, he preaches during the trial. By Acts 5, people recognize the power Peter exudes and they know his daily routine. They begin positioning anyone who needs to be healed in a place where he will pass by simply so that his shadow might fall upon them and heal their broken bodies, Acts 5.15. Incredibly, this is something we never saw Jesus do. But remember, Jesus promised that his followers would do greater things than he did in John 14.12. Remember that? Now, in short order, the Sanhedrin, that's the religious committee in Jerusalem, they toss a few of the disciples in jail. It was driven from jealousy, as you might imagine. In the middle of the night, an angel appears in prison, opens the doors, and sends the disciples back to the temple courts to preach. Of course, Peter leads the way. When questioned as to why he preaches when specifically ordered not to do so, Peter begins preaching again. And this garners him a flogging, in Acts 5.40, which he rejoices to receive, expressing honor to be counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. Incredibly, Peter later even raises a woman from the dead. Now, I love this story because there's a subtle nuance that most people hardly notice. Let me show you the scene, and then I'll point it out. This all happens in Acts 9.40-41. 40 I'm, I'm going to read the English Standard Version to you. But Peter, he put them all outside. That's the mourners. And then he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And then she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now notice that he first put all the mourners outside. Back then, it was common to show families how much they were loved by burying people in to cry out on behalf of the deceased. I'm sure it made people feel love, but it could be loudly distracting. This is likely why Jesus once emptied a room in the same way in Mark 540. Peter, he removes this distraction. He invites everyone to stop mourning for a moment as they file out of the room. He's determined to live like a rock instead of shifting sand. Then he kneels to pray in order to build his faith before he calls her forth to life. Notice, though, if you read the story, he seems to pray facing away from her. Almost as if he knows he can't look at the obstacle in front of him. This is in Acts 9.40. Look back at the scripture. And then when his faith rises, he turns toward her and he declares that she should come alive. I love that nuance. So the question is this. What do we make of all of this? Well, we know that Jesus first of all came to show us what the Father's like. That's what we talked about in the previous chat here. Um, and we reference verses like this, John 14:9 where Jesus says, "Whoever has seen me has seen the Father." And John 14:24, "The words I speak aren't just mine, they're the Father's words." And John 5:19, "I only do what I see the Father doing." Again, like we discussed, Jesus reveals what God is like. He's the exact representation of God, according to Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 1.3, and the fullness of the deity literally dwells in him, like Colossians 2.9 says. So clearly, Jesus introduces us to the Father. He shows us what God is really like. Now, here's what I want you to really see in this talk. Jesus also introduces us to ourselves. He shows us who we really are. Think about that exchange between Peter and Jesus, that first one where Jesus seems to have gotten the name wrong. Here's what actually happened. Hey, Simon, this is my paraphrase, by the way. Hey, Simon, let me tell you who I am. My name is Jesus. I'm here to show you what the Father is really like. Then, before Peter can grasp what that actually means, Jesus continues, By the way, I'm here to show you who you really are, too. And with that, let's just start right here. You're not the wavering, waffling guy that you seem to be. You're not the past, no matter how present that past seems to be. I've designed you and destined you for greatness. And when you look at me, you're not going to only see who the Father is. You're going to see who you are too. Now that, in my mind, sounds strange, doesn't it? But we see it all throughout the scripture. In fact, Paul penned it like this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says i'm just going to quote it new king james version we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the lord okay did you catch that paul said that looking at jesus is like looking at yourself in a mirror John, one of the disciples who spent a lot of time with Peter, he wrote it like this. So this is not an isolated theme in Scripture. 1 John 4, 17, he says, We will have confidence in the day of judgment because in this world, right now, in this world, we are like him. Now, I love what John says. A lot of people are afraid of approaching God because of their sin issues, because they've waffled like Simon. They've had some moments that are great, and they've had some nonsense moments. Yet, even in that, John says there's no fear of judgment, that we're not like that, that we're more, we're like Jesus. And again, Paul says, just to reference back 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we're so much like Jesus, that when we look at Jesus, it's like we're seeing our reflection, who we're designed to be in a mirror. I know, mind blown. What does that mean? Well, for starters, it means this. It means that I'm enough. You are too. You're enough. I mean, Jesus doesn't lack anything, right? And everything is going his way. It might not seem like it in the moment when he's facing the cross, but eventually everything works out. All things work together for the good. And it's important to begin our talk, like eventually I'm going to get you to spiritual gifts and the supernatural empowerment, but it's important that we begin this at the idea of our identity because we don't pursue gifts, we don't pursue our calling, we don't pursue our purpose in order to discover our value or worth as individuals. No, rather those things that we do, our calling, our destiny, our purpose, the great things that you're uh, created and designed for, we do those simply as an overflow of that value that's already been given to us spilling forth. That value is found in our identity, in who we are, not in anything that we do. And so I put this graphic inside the show notes again for you. It says this. It looks like a mirror reflection there. And it says on one side, it has an image, a graphic there of Jesus. And it says when we look at Jesus, we don't just see what the Father is like. There's this arrow that's kind of going back and forth that says Jesus reveals you because we also see what we're like. And this becomes our basis of revealing him to other people. Again, so not only does Jesus reveal who we are, but since we are like him, when we reveal him to others, uh, I mean, this is astounding. And here's the catch though. Unless your identity is secure in who you are as the man or woman in the mirror that reflects him, you'll continually look to other things to prop up that identity. Now, I I love how one pastor out of uh, Redding, California Chris Ballatin says this, he says, You were saved when you believed in Jesus, but you were transformed when you realized that he believes in you. That is an astounding, incredible idea. I may just say it again in a moment. And here's the idea. Apart from a deep revelation of your true identity, I've learned this, that we will look everywhere else, doing everything else, to find something that we already have, that we already possess deep on the inside. Let me let me show you what I mean. I'm going to read you another verse from James. That's Jesus' little brother. And, and I want to give you a warning. I want to read it, but I don't want you to read it with me like a legalist. Okay, so here it is. This is from James 1, 23 to 24. It says this. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and he immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Let's unpack that. First, let's discuss this doing the word thing that James mentions in that first part of the verse. Because he says, if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, you forgot what you looked like. At first glance, it seems like James beckons you really to just labor and toil and do things. In fact, this is a go-to verse for people who want to... uh, Here's the term I'm going to use, and I'll talk about it in a few weeks. They want an older brother their way through Christianity. Okay, and that's a reference to the prodigal son. So just kind of table that idea for later on, that, that somehow you have to earn it, or somehow Jesus gives you salvation by grace, but then you have to prove it. Okay, Jesus was clear this in John 6:29 that he actually says, this is from the New Living Translation. I'm just going to quote it. This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Okay, the work you need to do is to believe that when Jesus says you're a Peter, that you're actually a Peter and not a Simon. That is, you're actually a rock and not a sliver of sand. Okay, back to that quote that Christopher Lawton said, you were saved when you were believed in Jesus, but you were transformed when you realized that he believes in you. Okay, so second, let's discuss the mirror part. That sounds familiar. That language comes from, or we see it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We see it in 1 John. Let me ask you this question. I bet that if I showed you a picture right now, if I just texted it to you, or if I showed you on the wall, if you're over at my house, I have a lot of pictures in the uh, front uh, lobby, foyer, whatever you call it in the house where you first walk in the entrance. Um, I, I bet that if I showed you, if I had a picture of you right there and I showed you, I bet that you would recognize yourself. How? Well, because you've seen yourself in a mirror. You know what you actually look like. I mean, even little kids recognize themselves in family pictures or on camera wheels of your smartphone. You know, they are the first person that they look for in any picture. And honestly, as adults, we really do the same thing. We look for ourselves first. There's no way we'd be confused about what we look like. Right? Yet... James says this. James says that this is exactly what we're prone to do spiritually. He says it's, it's the same, essentially, in the same way that we don't forget who we are physically. He's telling us we shouldn't forget who we are in Christ as new creations, as his image bearers, as people whom he's called forth to greatness. And it means this, too. It means we don't get tripped up over our mess-ups. Like Peter, we'll have episodes in which the evidence seems to suggest that, no, we're not who Jesus says we are. In time, though, Jesus is right 100% of the time. Furthermore, it means this. We don't get sideswiped when others don't live up to who they really are, either. We continue, like Christ, calling forth the image in their mirror. That means that sometimes we even see that image in them before they do, and we get to speak that life over them. Now, I'm going to end it about right here. And But there's something, like let me just kind of allude to the next talk. There's something mystical about Christianity that we've got to discuss. It's this mirror thing, and it's far more radical than what you might think. So, our conversion story, it doesn't begin at the moment that we say yes to Jesus. That is salvation doesn't begin the moment we make a profession of faith or whatever it's called in your unique church or denomination. Well well, maybe let me say it like this. It actually does yet it technically doesn't it that's kind of double speak I know here's what I mean the work of Christ has been so overarching and all encompassing in your life that the scripture tells us that he not only changes you in the moment he actually transcends time and space and does something to you in the past as in the way back past the thousands of years ago past and I know this is gonna blow your mind again it does mine every single time I see it so here's what I want you to do I want you to catch your breath I want you to soak in for now the grandeur of your true identity that when you see Christ, that you see a reflection of who you're designed to be and He calls you who you are even before the evidence might suggest who you're designed to be. And then when you're ready, we're going to come back in the next talk and you're going to learn more about the amazing work that Christ has done into you. Here's my prayer for you now is that the Word would bless you that he would keep you, that he'd be gracious and shine his face a favor upon you, that you would realize that you are not the past, even if the past is so almost present, that you would realize that you're not even the stumbles that you're probably going to make in the future, that your identity is settled, and wherever you find yourself now is not